I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Chris Savory in London. <laughs> and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and thank you to Chris and Martha Savory that you heard there in our intro. Chris backed us in our Kickstarter last year. I think he's actually backed us every year. He certainly backed us the previous year because he came to our first ever Christmas party uh, with his wife Livy and Martha in in Utero. So we've we've known little Martha who just celebrated her second birthday since the very beginning. Yeah. She's she's an indoctrinated tennis podcast listener. She's had no choice about it. <laughs> this we're, is our favorite type. We're uh, we're getting them in the womb, folks. <laughs> <laughs> start start them young. Uh so thank you Chris, Leeds fan Chris. I'm going to be uh presenting a uh a football match from Leeds on Wednesday. Am I allowed to say that, David? Yeah. Yeah, I'm allowed to say that. It. Okay. So uh, I hope to do you proud, Chris. Thank you for uh, your support. Thank you to everyone that supported us in this year's Kickstarter. We're nearing in on £100,000 to fund the podcast for next season, which is beyond our wildest dreams. Thank you to everyone that's chipped in. It's still open for, <laughs> for a really long time. And uh, you can still grab yourself a shout out or a name dissection. If you've got a cool name or you share a name with a famous person or anything at all. Um, yeah, get yourself a get yourself a shout out. Um, but yeah, mostly thank you to everyone that has backed so far. We we remain in a permanent state of overwhelmment, if there is such a word. David, how are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, well, I mean, apart from the fact that you just started talking about football and my football team have just been not doing me proud at all. And uh, Matt's been showing off over the weekend because his team, Fulham, drew with the champions. Let's leave football there. Um, and otherwise, doing all right. How you doing, Matt? Fine, thank you. Yes, if 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 ever there's a podcast to start talking about football, this this is the one for me, and sadly not, David. <laughs> you can have a little moment, Matt. How you, how you feeling football wise? Very good, actually. I was quite sad at the start of the game because fans were back, and I said to you, "Oh, someone's in my seat," <laughs> because my dad and I are are not involving ourselves in this ticket ballot process at the moment. We kind of want to see how it goes, really. Um, there was a, a Matt Roberts impersonator. Mm. 
But as the, as the game went on, I actually was cheered by the sight of fans back at Craven Cottage, and it was it was a very happy ninety minutes, pretty much. So yeah, um, all things good on the on the football front for about two days until we lose to Brighton, and then I'll be depressed again. But for the moment, it's great. This has been the football podcast brought to you in association with absolutely no one. Um, in <laughs> the terms, rubbish teams football podcast. <laughs> in terms of tennis, obviously there hasn't been any. You might have noticed that. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the past, um, which is yeah. quickly becoming our specialty. Um, but before we talk about the past, a quick nod, David, to the the present and the future potentially, um, in terms of Roger Federer, because he has just been awarded the best sports person in the last 70 years in Switzerland award. I don't think that is its official catchy title, but I think the official catchy title isn't that catchy either. Um, So, yeah, we're not sure what happened 71 years ago. If anybody knows of some epic Swiss sports person uh, in the year 1949, uh, please let us know. But anyway, Roger Federer, the greatest Swiss sports person for 70 years, while accepting the award, and this is via uh, Simon Graf, the uh, Swiss um, uh, uh, tennis journalist, he said, I would love to be in Australia, but it will be very tight with my knee. I don't want to take the next step until I'm ready. These three weeks might help me a bit. The summer with Wimbledon, the Olympics and the US Open is my priority. He also said that if he were to fly to Australia, his family would stay home because of the two-week quarantine. Um, mm. Which I found very interesting. I mean, my initial response was to be quite alarmed that after 10 months, nine months post-knee surgery, it's still a race against time. I mean, I thought that the best thing about this this season and kind of writing it off would be that he would you know, he just bought himself plenty of time to make sure he would be absolutely right for the start of start of 2021. So th- this alarmed me a little bit. Mm. Well, he had the knee surgery initially, and then he had another issue with it, didn't he? It wasn't, it didn't go completely according to plan. Uh, and he had another procedure to it. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's that. I also wonder whether he really wants it whether he really fancies this whole experience versus in his words waiting until the summer and that that little collection of three events three huge events back to back um i mean it would be classic federer wouldn't it to just happen to sit out the entire pandemic and come back and just be on all cylinders when uh, when it's over and wimbledon the olympics and the us open starts up but that also makes me wonder whether that it's that and then out. Mm. I mean, those quotes make me wonder whether all cylinders is a thing anymore. We've heard kind of rumours throughout the year, really, that Federer's not been recovering as well as he did 2016 into 2017, as you said, David, requiring a second surgery. I think he then said he was a bit behind schedule. There were sort of little quotes coming out suggesting that he wasn't on quite on the right track. Um and I don't think that line about his family not being with him in Australia is, is insignificant either. He's said that all along for the last five years, probably, really, that being able to be on tour with his family is one of the key things that keeps him going. I, I wouldn't be surprised if 
this combination of that and not feeling 100% fit does mean he sits out the Australian swing. Um, but then, I don't know, even, even so, it doesn't feel to me like we're going to be in a place where we were a few years ago where Federer's just suddenly back and everything's great again in his world. It, it, it strikes me that we are, of course, we're three years, four years further down the, down the line. Of course, we're nearer the end. But those quotes yesterday, he finished that ceremony with a, it might have just been a throwaway line to kind of close out the ceremony and say something nice about that prize where he said, you know, I'd li- I hope to make it back on court next year. But if not, this is a, this is a nice place to finish with this award that I think suddenly Twitter was alive and everyone was getting extremely panicky about that quote. But I kind of saw that as a little sort of token to that award, maybe. He's, he certainly said it smiling. Um, but I think we're in a very different place to where we were three or four years ago. And and like you, David, I wouldn't be surprised if when he does come back, it's it's very close to the end. Mm. Let's Let's definitely put Australian Open 2017 at the top of our... Uh, Australian Open relived list, please. <laughs> if we're not going to get anything like that again, uh, I need I need to relive it as a matter of urgency. Yes, it's it's already in the list. Catherine. Okay, good. Don't all, worry. all of it. I want to relive every every day, men's and women's. Please, <laughs> I just want to pretend it is that time again. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I I agree with everything. The only thing I'd say is. He, he's been very clear about the fact that he's got no appetite to play in front of crowds. And whilst there is a lot of uncertainty swirling around the Australian Open, one thing that is certain is that there will be crowds and that, you know, OK, you have to go through quite the ordeal to get there and to, to play. Once you've come through that tunnel, it will feel as close to normality and tennis normality as we've experienced in, well, it'll be close to a year by that point. So if he wants, you know, to taste that again, there are absolutely no guarantees beyond Australia next year that if it is to be his last year, that he'll be able to to go out in some kind of fitting way. Um, so I don't know. It's It's, yeah. It's going to be very interesting. If he plays that US Open, he will be 40. Yes. Yes. I mean, the Olymp- the, it, I think personally it's Wimbledon and the Olympics. Yes, we're um, kind of back to where we were this time <laughs> yeah. last year, where the next year yeah. is all about the summer again for Federer. Yes. Um, I think, you know, the Olympics being best of three mm. um, makes it an extra carrot, I think, a slightly more realistic carrot. And I think, you know close to 40 or not he's going to always think he has a chance at Wimbledon um so and who can say he's wrong Mm. so yeah that's your Roger Federer news it's time now to delve into the past um because we're going to be doing lost in time tennis tennis players that that don't get the dues the recognition that they deserve in in the modern day for for a whole variety of of reasons you know there are a lot of overlooked tennis players i think maybe the ones that that don't get so involved in broadcasting and punditry tend to be tend to be forgotten because you're not constantly being you know hammered with graphic strap lines of um so and so three time grand slam champion you know it's just a constant reminder isn't it? it keeps them keeps them fresh and relevant and present there are and we we crowdsourced for this on on our social media channels and 
I, I suppose it's it would be silly of me to say that I was surprised by how many really good suggestions there were because of course you would be surprised because the whole point is that these players have been forgotten and haven't received the recognition that they deserve but I was I was pretty blown away by the response and how many players there were that that could have featured in this in this episode mm, which does mean we may have further installments of this series <laughs> if, if this one goes well <laughs> but uh but no I mean it's and actually I've really enjoyed the process of we, we've divided them up three each and I, I've really enjoyed the process of just finding out more about the people that are, the, that I selected certainly and 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 it's just a reminder that everybody has a great story pretty much everybody and so yeah we want to tell some of them yeah lost in time t-shirts coming to a merchandise <laughs> store near you soon if uh, if David Law has anything to do with it yeah so we've picked we've picked three each um, we we could have picked plenty more. Um, who would like to go first with their submissions for Lost in Time Tennis? Matt? Sure. Yes. Okay. Well, we're <laughs> going to go one at a time, aren't we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I- I- I'll start with Manuel Orantes. Please tell me everything I need to know about Manuel Orantes because I'm I'm ashamed to say I know very little. Mm. I think if you're not interested in tennis there's zero chance you've heard of him and if he's you're, a pointless answer isn't he yeah and if you're into tennis you might have a vague idea of who he is but you'd have to be really into tennis and probably looked at his career to actually figure out what he did certainly i had to um his heyday was the 70s and just these are just a few lines that illustrate how good he was um According to the ATP website, he won 722 matches in the open era in singles, which puts him 15th on the all-time list of matches won for the men. That's more than Boris Becker. It's more than Andy Murray. It's more than Leighton Hewitt. It's more than Michael Chang. These are all much bigger names than him. It's only 40 short of Pete Sampras. He won so many matches. He reached world number two in 1973. He reached at least the quarterfinals of every Grand Slam. That's taking into account that he only played the Australian Open once and he reached the quarterfinals. And he wasn't a grass court specialist at all and he reached the semis of Wimbledon. He reached 72 finals in his career and won half of them. So 36 titles. That is a lot of titles. And the majority of those are on clay. Rome, Hamburg, Monte Carlo, all, all tournaments that we still have and recognise today. Big tournaments. Um, but he never won the French Open, despite having a couple of really good chances. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why he doesn't sort of stick out, I suppose. In 1974, he reached the final and led Bjorn Borg by two sets to love. And then Ooh. lost the last three sets, love six, one six, one six. Oh, my God. mm, Rather fell apart. And then in 1976, it was the year Borg lost in the quarters to Panetta. So Arantes was in the draw, had a chance. And then he lost in the quarters to Eddie Dibbs. So I've never heard of Eddie Dibbs. He doesn't doesn't say French Open champion that name to me. No, I think he might be another lost in time. Eddie Dibbs. (laughs) (laughs) But Arantes did win a slam. He beat Jimmy Connors in the 1975 US Open final. And that was that was on clay at Forest Hills. Um, 
And when I dug into that a little more, I found that he beat Nastasi in the quarters and Vilas in the semis. So a really impressive run to that title. And Sports Illustrated described that semi-final against Vilas as one of the matches of the decade. Arantes was five love down in the fourth set, two sets to one down, saved five match points and came back to win it in five sets. No way. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like one of the best comebacks ever. Um, and so I think the reason I've chosen him is because he was dominant on clay throughout kind of throughout the 70s. He didn't win Roland Garros, but he was he was other than that, he was dominant on the tour, kind of alongside Borg. And I'm kind of surprised that having that sort of single focus hasn't made him well known. Like, why is he not known as this player who was really good on clay, who we point to? He, he sounds a little bit like Conchita Martinez. Mm. Completely dominant on clay. You know, we re- relived her successes in, in Rome earlier this year. Won one slam, but not the one that everybody assumed yeah, that, exactly. that they would win. Um, and... I think I think it's also interesting, you know, I'm sure we've got some other people on this list who maybe won one slam. And it's interesting, the slam you win, I think, can really dictate, not to knock Pat Cash, but I, <laughs> but, but I thought it was interesting to compare Arantes' career to Pat Cash's career. And Pat Cash is way more well-known in tennis. And I think part of that is what you said about he's maintained a presence, he's in the media, he's coached, all that kind of thing. But he won six titles, Pat Cash, and one of them was Wimbledon. Arantes won 36 titles, wow. but never won Wimbledon. Didn't have that iconic moment of sort of going into the stands like Pat Cash did. Didn't have the headband like Pat Cash. It's, it's funny what people pick up on and what they remember. He didn't have a brand by the sounds of things, Arantes. What, That's where he went wrong. What I would say about Cash is that he did reach two Australian sure. Open finals back-to-back and he won the Davis Cup several times, but even... In spite of all that, it really is Wimbledon, isn't it? Mm. it you know, you, you it, he could have done none of those other things and people would still remember that Wimbledon. Yeah. And I just have one more story about Arantes, which I have to share, which is another thing that's been lost in time. He's, he's part of a small group of players who've been defaulted from a Grand Slam. Oh, what did he do? I should know this because I have read this out from a very hastily made up graphic <laughs> at the US Open this year. But it's not a traditional default because it didn't happen during a match. Um, I'll read from Sports Illustrated now. This is the 1980 French Open and he basically got defaulted for refusing to take to the court. This is how Sports Illustrated describes it. This fiasco had its beginnings when Vilas turned up sick one afternoon after a steak lunch in the press room and asked that his match with Arantes be delayed half an hour until 3.30 while he received an enema or a washout, (laughs) as Ted Tingling described it. (laughs) Officials granted the request but failed to alert Arantes, who, having not spotted Vilas on the premises, waited the mandatory 15 minutes until 3.15 and then demanded that Vilas be defaulted for being late. Unaware of the development, Vilas arrived at Roland Garros ready to play at 3.30, but Arantes angrily declined to take the court. The officials now face the question, whom to disqualify? And then the writers put obvious answer, themselves. 
Maybe they should have summoned Inspector Cluzo, but what they did do was nothing. While the pot boiled overnight, so did Arantes. And when the match was rescheduled the next day, the sporting Spaniard still refused to play. And Vilas was declared the winner and went straight into the quarterfinals without hitting a ball and presumably without eating another press room steak either. Well, I would say he probably continued eating press room steaks because he suffered... (laughs) No, no consequences. That, I mean, that worked out brilliantly for him. Yeah. Poor Getting Arantes. indigestion. I, I was gonna, just going to say I'm never going to eat a press room steak again, but when have you ever seen a steak available in a press room? Oh, uh, French Open French every open. day. Every mm. day, I mean, David, for lunch. Oh. You steak, have to queue 40 steak, minutes if you want one. Steak, chips and a l- lot of French people drinking red wine at midday every day. Well, as we know, I've never been to the French Open. Are they good? <laughs> Yeah, it's really great on days one and two. And then and then by day 10, you're Guillermo Vilas wanting an enema. What they do is, <laughs> is they cook the steak to everyone's preference. Yeah. Which is lovely, but it just takes forever. <laughs> yeah, there's just this bottleneck, a tier bouchon of... Uh, <laughs> I know that's a corkscrew, isn't it? A, uh, an embouteillage. An embouteillage of... Uh, of, of chefs shouting medium it was medium era oh yeah just another 30 seconds i mean come on this is mass catering uh yeah we miss it though yeah (laughs) we miss it desperately um well that is i mean that is so much more than i knew about manuel arantes uh, 10 minutes yeah. ago. Thank you, Matt. 71 years of age now, I'm reading, um, and he was left-handed. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to go back and watch him play now. I want to you know, see that US Open final now. Yeah. Mm. Oh, really wets the appetite, doesn't it? Follow that, Great David. Stories. Who have you got? Okay, well, I will go back to 1976 and the last Australian man to win the Australian Open, and that man was Mark Edmondson. Um, who is is a fa- it's a fascinating tale to read about him. It's also just really interesting to look over the history of the Australian Open because whilst that feels like a massive deal, you know that's that's forty four years since uh, an Australian man has won the Australian Open. Before that, in the fifty five tournaments played before Edmondson's victory, an Australian man had either won it or featured in the, as a runner up. So uh, an wow. Australian man had always been in the final for the last for the fifty five years that preceded nineteen seventy six, and since then players have reached the final. Pat Cash, I mentioned earlier, Leighton Hewitt was the most recent one in two thousand and five, but n- not many. You know, only only a handful, and no man has actually won it. And he was the most unlikely of men to do it because. He came into that tournament ranked 212 in the world. He was – there's a great line in, in, a, in a piece I, I read from the Age newspaper um, that said, no, no man ranked this low has ever reached the Australian Open f- finals. Probably no man has ever reached a Grand Slam final. It said probably. It hadn't done the research. It just said probably, <laughs> which made me laugh. Um, but I mean, to, to give an idea of of the the kind of athlete he was at the time. I mean, he was as you probably would get now with a player ranked two hundred and twelve in the world. He was kind of 
And back then, particularly, he was almost semi-professional, really. A couple of weeks before, his sister had given him a job in a hospital cleaning floors and cleaning windows in order to to make ends meet while he was waiting to see if he could get into the Australian Open. Um, And it ended up meaning that the headlines when he ended up having this incredible one were, Janitor wins Australian Open. (laughs) Um, oh, that's epic! And, yeah, and he to, just to get into the tournament, he he won the Tasmanian Open to get into it, and stayed at a friend's house during the entire two weeks. He, you know, there were all the other players, all the big names, and there were a lot of big names around at that that time. I mean, these were these were the stages when Ken Rosewell was still playing, and he would end up meeting Ken Rosewell in the semis. Now, Rosewell was he must have been ancient. Yeah, he was forty-one. He was 41 Gosh. years of age, was Ken Rosewell. He was still number two in the world at the time. So he's, you know, back end of his career. Something to aim and for, Roger. <laughs> there you go. And um, and there's a great stat that Rosewell won his first slam before Edmondson was born. Um, <laughs> and here they were playing each other in the semis. Um, and Edmondson was this this big, burly guy with a handlebar moustache and he goes and beats Rosewell and nobody could believe it. And like I say, Janitor beats Rosewell was the headline that day. Um, and and he, he took the tram home afterwards um, and uh, somebody on the tram said to him, nice job beating Ken. Uh, you won't have much chance in the final against Nuke though, will you? And uh, And he sort of nodded and he says, look, I just don't want to make a fool of myself on the court. That's what Edmondson's attitude to, to the whole thing was really. You know, he He was such a a fish out of water and he plays the final against John Newcomb who had won seven Grand Slam titles already by this time I mean Newcomb was a, a massive name and re- a real star as well you know he really carried the 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 mantle of being a champion and a star the way that Edmondson just didn't and he really owned the handlebar moustache didn't he I mean that was that was his territory yeah, and, and actually, watch. I just watched a little bit of footage before we we started recording of the two of them, and and I mean they do look very very similar with these these big mustaches, and and Edmondson just looks so unassuming as though he just doesn't belong on the stage, really, as though he's just been given this chance to play this once in a lifetime match, a bit like Rocky Balboa in the Rocky <laughs> movies, handpicked to face Apollo Creed, um, and the, the 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 conditions of this match were were extreme. It's 40 degrees Celsius. A lot of people didn't end up coming and taking the seats at all. People that had bought tickets because it was just so hot. And midway through the match, a violent wind comes onto the court such that chairs are flying across the court and there's a picture of Newcomb throwing himself to the ground on his front with his hands on his head just to try to protect himself from these things that are flying across the court. They ended up having to delay the final midway through for 30 minutes. Um, but Edmondson just took it in his stride. He won through in four sets. Um, and, I mean, I, I watched the trophy presentation. He, he drops the trophy when he's given it to him. <laughs> um, he's The guy says to him, you didn't really expect this, did you? I don't, I don't think you've even got a victory speech, have you? And he goes, no. And that was it. <laughs> He hadn't got a clue what he was meant to do at all. And he won a first prize of $7,500. And I think like with any of these stories, whenever 
somebody has a massive win that is a yardstick like that. In his case, it was the last Australian man to win the Australian Open. You you kind of get wheeled out to talk about it every every year, you know. But to some journalist or some TV channel, uh, to put it into perspective, you know, like when like Hewitt was in the final, he would have been the reference point. Um, and he says, you know, really the that that's the one thing that is, I suppose, hard to take is that when you just see the sheer amounts of money players earn now for winning a tournament like that, or even just for. for getting into the main draw they would have and i know the value of money is a lot more relatively speaking with inflation than it was then but still it's just an extreme difference but then yeah thereafter tennis changed a lot at that time there weren't many players coming over from overseas to play in the australian open that did change as the as the years went on and has made it a lot more difficult for australian players to win it and if you think of the players that have tried and not managed to do it pat rafter uh, never reached an australian open final um leighton hewitt reached one and he lost in 2005 to marit safin um pat cash reached two finals and was unable to get over the line two five setters um mark philippousis there's been so many of them and they just couldn't do it so he remains that perennial line uh, who was the last man to win it it was mark edmondson and the rest of his career he ranked at a high of 25 in the world he won five major doubles titles uh, in his career, reached the semi-final of, the, of Wimbledon in 1982. But really, that was the moment. That's the moment he'll always be remembered for. Mm. Well, well, while he is a perennial line, you've given me a great segue here, David. Thanks very much. While he is the perennial line at the Australian Open every year, I've gone for somebody who ought to be the perennial line, and that's Mary Pierce. So often, I, I think, too often, obviously too often, when people are asked who was the last French player to to win the French Open, people say Yannick Noah because Andy Murray voice. When when people say player or think player, so often they default to male player. Um, that wasn't my best. <laughs> um, and of course, it was Mary Pierce, the last French player to win the French Open. And I think, I think there are probably three reasons why she isn't given the credit she deserves for that achievement. I think number one is is sexism. It happens all the time. There are countless examples of it. Unfortunately, Andy Murray can't be there for all of them to to set people straight. Um, I think the second one is, and I don't know what the umbrella term for this is, whether it's racism, xenophobia, whatever it is, but Mary Pierce had a triple nationality. She she um, she represented, she was born in Canada. She had an American father and a French mother. She represented France internationally and had citizenship for all three countries. And, you know, see Gigi Fernandez. Um, and that mm. heartbreaking interview that I did with her about her two Olympic gold medals and how it still haunts her that she isn't credited with being the first Puerto Rican to win Olympic gold. I think there is a failure to to embrace Mary Pierce within France and a failure by the world and the tennis community to to know what to do with her because we, as a as a world and as a sport 
aren't very good at appreciating that people can be a lot more than one thing, let alone three things. Just ask Naomi Osaka. She mm. she doesn't have a problem with it herself. It's very clear for her. But the amount of time she's being asked about her ethnicity, ethnicity is constant. And she, she feels sort of a barrage of questions of having to justify how she feels and identifies. And mm. yeah, it's still an ongoing issue. And I imagine it was even worse back when Mary Pierce was playing. Mm. And... <laughs> I, I think that the third reason is it's that sort of indef- indefinable agglomeration of other factors that meant that she wasn't even, I don't think, appreciated enough in her in her time, Mary Pierce. She was a two-time Grand Slam champion and her career had this really strange trajectory to it. If you plotted it on a graph, it would look really, really unorthodox. She had three peaks, each of them five years, five years apart. Um, she she reached her first Grand Slam singles final at the 1994 French Open. She conceded just 10 games en route to the final. Of course, that was a stat that was being wheeled out this year because Iga Svantec, uh did did the same, or actually better, didn't she? No, slightly um, she, worse. But slightly worse. It was it was the fewest was the games since. since Mary Pierce. Yeah. That was it. Um, and she beat Steffi Graf six two six two in uh in that win and after after that match Steffi Graf the great Steffi Graf said um and I need to find the quotes here they're from um they're from an article that Tumani Cariol um did about her and and she spoke to Mary Pierce he spoke to Mary Pierce earlier this year after that match Steffi Graf said there was very little I could do you know that is Steffi Graf saying she was completely powerless on the court against against Mary Pierce, who was you know at, at the time little known. Really, I saw that match. I remember seeing that match, and because she, I would say she was my favourite player at the time, Mary Pierce. And she was the one that I personally, as a tennis fan, just paying attention every week, was excited about because of her power. I, I mm. just sort of thought, you know, when you've got Graf and you and Selish and you'd got and she was obviously not on the scene, and you got Rancho Sanchez as the main rival at that point. Pierce was so exciting because her power was on a level that that was beyond her years. I mean, it would stand up today; it would look the part today. And she did. She she thrashed Graf. It was one of the most exciting wins that 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 I'd ever seen. And then yet she came unstuck in the final. Mm. And and you know. On that theme, in in March of 2000, this is also from uh, Tumani's article in The Guardian, Serena Williams lost to Mary Pierce 6-2-6-1. And after that match, she said, everything she hit was either on the line or a winner. So, I mean, what can you do? She was somebody that on her day, the greats, Mm. in their prime, walked onto court against her and felt like they had the racket taken out of their, their hands. Um so yeah, she had this sort of peak in in nineteen ninety four ninety five. She reached the French Open final ninety four. She won the Australian Open title in ninety five. She beat Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. Then she wins the French Open title in two thousand, beating Conchita Martinez in the final. And that was when she became, of course, the last French player to win Roland Garros. And then she had what at the time was such a surprising resurgence around. 
2005 French Open final, she lost out to Justine Ennan. Um, and the US Open final, she she lost to Kim Clijsters. And she said after after that run to the final, she said, I've been on tour for 17 years and there are still firsts for me. It's pretty amazing. Um, and I, do, I don't really remember those sort of early couple of peaks of Mary Pierce's career, but I remember that 2005 period that she had. And I remember not knowing much about her. And I was really into tennis by this point. And it, for me, came completely out of the blue. She was... 30 years old by that stage and I remember at the time that age that number being talked about all the time she's 30 and she's reaching Grand Slam (laughs) finals she's flipping ancient Um, I really do remember that you know it was it was not foreseen at all 2001 she ended the year outside the world's top 100 130 in the world and it's worth pointing out she had some serious injury woes in amongst all of this 2002 she finished the year 52 in the world and then 2003 33 in the world and 2004 29 but she didn't win a title between the French Open in 2000 and uh, summer of 2004 but in 2005 she ended the year at number five which which matched her her career best seasons in in the 90s. So this strange sort of triple peaked career. Um, And of course, the whole whole story was blighted by her father and stories that would emerge about her overbearing and abusive father. And unfortunately, that's a very familiar tale. But I think if you asked tennis fans, what do you know, what do you remember about Mary Pierce I fear that so many would talk about her father and that relationship first and foremost um she she had to hire bodyguards during her career to keep keep her abusive father away there's a a story that that Tamani tells in in his article um of um she she finally severs contact with her father in sort of the the mid nineties. He got he got banned from tournaments. She she filed a restraining order against him, but he would still follow her on tour. He would check into her tournament hotels, and that was why she had to hire the bodyguards. and And one day he he actually got into a fight with one of those bodyguards, and and it was a, a bloody fight in the corridor of an Italian hotel while Mary Pierce is is locked in she's locked herself in an adjacent room on the same on the same floor um and it was never something she really spoke about at the time despite being asked repeatedly about it um but in 1993 she she finally did talk about it in a in a sports illustrated story and the headline and the cover the cover headline to that story was why mary pierce fears for her life um, so, you know, you, you can understand why that was so much of the focus because it's a harrowing, harrowing tale, but it's a dreadful shame that it overpowered, it overshadowed her tennis. Um, and the, the most extraordinary thing I find about Mary Pierce is she didn't pick up a racket for the first time till she was 10 years old and she turned pro at 14 she was the youngest American to turn professional at 14 years and two months old. She learned to play professional level tennis in four years. 
And I know there are some some sporting theorists theorists that poo poo the concept of of natural talent and natural ability, but Mary Pierce alone, and I'm not saying she didn't work extremely hard in those four years and subsequently throughout her career, but that alone just proves how much how much of a factor natural talent is. Mm-hmm. Four years from a standing start. That's that that to me I find ludicrous. It's, it's got to give you hope for archery at the next Olympics, though, Catherine. That's an Olympic cycle. <laughs> you read my mind, Matt. Also, break dancing coming into the next Olympics. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is is there a possibility as well that she came through? Was it just after Jennifer Capriati and Capriati yeah. was, was already seen as? the young talent maybe there wasn't space for two quite so much yeah and and there wasn't confusion about capriati's um nationality she was american she was mm. she was young she was a big hitter um she also had an overbearing father it was like oh, we don't have we don't have room for another one of these and you're the more confusing um yeah. you're mm. the more confusing player we don't we can't pigeonhole you in the same way so we're just going to sort of leave you on the sidelines that's yeah, I, I do feel like we in the media or the media at the time, it was before my time, but I do feel like it, when she first came along, it was she was shown as a polarising person on, on the circuit. And, and I also think, I mean, she was somebody who was quite dramatic on the court with her mm. body language. And I think that that did put some people off. She, later in her career, she was somebody who took a lot of medical timeouts and, and long ones, and that seemed to wind people up. I also heard um that in in his old age she actually reconciled with her, with her father which which i was surprised about given all the stories that had happened early on you know yeah well i've i've worked with her a fair bit uh, at eurosport not for a year or so but um for a few years there i worked with her a lot and i didn't know as much then about mary's mary pierce's career as i as i ought to have you know i knew the headlines two-time grand slam champion all of that kind of stuff but one thing I was very surprised to find was how she talked about her father, because one of the things I did know and remember, as as I said, most people would, was that relationship she had with her father. You know, he he his behaviour prompted a rule change in, or the introduction of a new rule in the WTA called the Jim Pierce rule, um, which meant that the play that um, team members and family members could be banned by the WTA from from tournaments you know it was really bad um and I was surprised yeah to find that she she talked about him quite fondly she had become a born-again Christian by this point it's clear that she she had been on a big journey um to find a kind of some kind of peace with the situation but I I I I don't want to put put words in her mouth I'm sure it was a very complicated time but I Goodness me, it must have been hard to to deal with his death in in twenty seventeen. A lot of complex emotions around that, I'm sure. Um, and you know, there is there is a lot of sadness to her story, but I feel like it's such a complex, unorthodox story that tennis hasn't really been able to find find a place for it. Mm. Um, and that's a that's a shame. Because she was great to watch, wasn't she? Yeah, well, I'm glad you included her in your mm. selections. Because she was, 
I didn't I didn't choose it, but I mean, I, I like I say, she was just a real favourite of mine when when I was a young mm. a youngster, a younger person. We're talking about two thousand and five. You being a youngster, David. <laughs> uh, Nineteen ninety four. I was <laughs> right, twenty one. Okay. Right? During I was peak, young and impressionable. Peak number one. Sure. Were those lost law years? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That podcast so. is still slated. It, it'll. <laughs> it'll. We'll. We'll. Yeah. Coming to you at some point in the in the uncertain future. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We're already on 45 minutes and we've only covered a third of our selections. So I think predictions of this heading into a, a two-parter uh, <laughs> might come true. But we'll we'll press on for now. Matt, who's your second submission? I've got someone that we've mentioned quite a bit already. And that's Arangsha Sanchez Vicario. Um, I was watching A Question of Sport the other week, which for anyone who doesn't know is a very popular sports quiz show. And... They were asked to rank Venus Williams, John McEnroe and Arantxa Sanchez Vicario in terms of how many Grand Slam singles finals they reached. And actually, it's hosted by Sue Barker, a question of sport, but the but the captains are not tennis people at all. And tennis questions in quiz shows tend to be quite hard, I think, because tennis is still a fairly niche sport. Anyway... Both captains immediately discarded Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, someone who, oh no, she's definitely not got the pedigree or the or the gravitas as Venus Williams or John McEnroe. It's definitely between those two. And it, it turns out that Venus Williams has reached the most, but Arantxa Sanchez Vicario reached more Grand Slam finals than John McEnroe. And I just think for a lay tennis fan, just hearing that is quite 
shocking really she mm. she doesn't have the cut through that so many other successful players have and then i think even within tennis the reason i would say she's lost in time is because she's remembered for being the runner up you know you you think arantxa sanchez vicario you think kind of the bridesmaid and there's there's a lot of evidence to support that she did lose eight grand slam singles finals and in 1995 and 1996, she reached the final at five of the eight slams and lost all of wow. those finals. And then she lost the French Open and Wimbledon double two years in a row to Steffi Graf. Uh, she lost the 1995 Wimbledon 7-5 in the third and she lost the 1996 French Open 10-8 in the third. You know, she had some really painful, heartbreaking, close defeats. Um, she was the runner-up at the WTA finals. She never won it. She won Olympics medals, but four of them, but none of them were gold. Uh, her record against the best players of her era, she was 2-18 and 18 against Hingis. She was 3-20 and 20 against Monica Seles. She was 8-28 and 28 against Graf. She was 3-12 and 12 against Navratilova. You know, when she did come up against the very best players, she often did come out second. But I think it's probably been overlooked how much she also won in that time. She won four Grand Slam singles titles and, and they were nine years apart, her first and last. So she's got that longevity of winning as well. She won six in doubles. She won four in mixed doubles. And she's got an extraordinary Fed Cup record. She won it five times and she still holds the record for the most matches won by a player in the Fed Cup with uh, 72. And, you know, when you put all of that together, you see that she actually had an extraordinarily successful career that is much more than just second place, which I think is is how she's most often remembered. There are similarities there in the stats that you're, you're reeling off with Andy Murray, mm. aren't there? I mean, obviously there's, there's not the... The, the gap in time to do a direct comparison, but he will be remembered very differently, I'm sure. But he's lost a lot more Grand Slam finals than he's won. He's got losing records against his biggest rivals who are also remembered as, or will be remembered as the greatest of all time. Yeah, I'm, I'm anxious about how Andy Murray will be remembered. I, I really think he, he will be celebrated. But I've always thought there's never been a big five I've always said that, and maybe that's mm. harsh on Wawrinka, but that's always been yeah, how I felt. He's always said it as well. He has. There was definitely a big four, and I've always feared that history will remember a big three. Because, you know, in so many years' time, you'll just look at the numbers and three men will stand out way above Andy Murray. Oh, my God. In 10 years' time, are we going to be sitting here in Lost in Time T-shirts? <laughs> doing a, yeah. a, show, a show about Andy Murray, trying to Hope remind so. ourselves who he was and what he did. But yeah, it, I, I do think Murray obviously is going to be remembered, but I could it, it's possible that a, in, in pure tennis terms, a similar thing will happen with him as, and, uh, as to what's happened with Sanchez Vicario. Certainly outside of the UK, it's quite mm. possible that in, you know, in Britain he'll... Yeah, he'll be sure. remembered very differently to how. I mean, of course he will to to the rest of the tennis, rest of the tennis world. But a lot of similarities there for me. Almost this feeling of just muscling in and grabbing this handful of grand slams in a time when they were just so hard to come by. Mm, I tend to feel that he is 
almost an example of how she is hard done to, really, mm. in terms of our memories, though, because I think that he will stand mostly the test of time. I think he will be regarded as a big four in as a in a way that Arantxa Sanchez Vicario was never regarded as part of a big four with Selesh and Graf and whoever else you want to put into that equation. Now Ratilova, for instance, I don't. I, I think yes, the big three will supersede that ultimately because that's almost happened since uh, Andy Murray's faded from the scene. But yeah, I mean when we were doing tennis, we lived particularly well. The Roland Garros and the the Wimbledon series, daily shows from both. The fact that we did not have an Arantxa Sanchez Vicario show mm. was one of the omissions that listeners picked up on and is one that when they said it, I kind of dismissed from because my recollection was, well, she was kind of like a Michael Chang, wasn't she? And then you actually look at the results, and that, re- and that, and I'm not trying to dis um, Michael Chang in any way here, who was who, who I think we gave all all his dues to, but we did not consider Anranches of Sanchez Vicario's record. Michael Chang did not have all those Grand Slam finals to his name, and you know they won their first Grand Slam t- there in Chang's only Grand Slam title they won it at the same event mm. 1989 and I remember that I, d- I didn't see that final but I was a I remember being a, a Steffi Graf fan and I remember having never heard of Arantxa Sanchez as she was known then you know the Vicaria came added to her name later but that was a huge that was never given as much attention as the Michael Chang victory with his underarm serve and his and his uh, standing in and half volleying returns and all that sort of thing but then all the way through the career she was never the woman she was never the one that people were talking about she was always the opponent and it feels when you look at the score lines in those finals against Graf several of them deep in the third set extended third sets she was such an important figure in the mid 90s and and i don't think i don't think i ever gave her credit really um she had an interesting game with an amazing backhand but she wasn't a she didn't have a real weapon that you could point to um what i loved about her was i loved the little little bits she had about her, the the bounce she, she we talk we see it with Sophia Kennan today, um, and the and the, the first player I'd ever seen with a ball clip on her belt. Yep, I wanted one of those. To, <laughs> yeah, I'd never seen a player who had one of those, and I don't think I've seen one since either. Um, Which is ludicrous but, because what a practical item. Yeah, very much so. Um, but no, I just feel like I'm glad you've picked up on her, Matt. I really am. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well as as much as that feels like a lovely self-congratulatory note to end on i am going to ask for one more from you david again follow that okay well i'm going to go back a little bit in time from where matt is uh to wendy turnbull who was a player that i remember well as i can use as a youngster a bit more now because um her heyday was the late 70s and, and early 80s um, she had her main successes on the doubles court in terms of actually winning Grand Slam titles. She was she was extremely successful on the doubles court. Um, if uh, if I just run you through a couple of the the highlights of that career, she won nine Grand Slam doubles title, four in women's and five in mixed. Um, 
inevitably came up against Martin Navratilova and, and lost nine of the 11 Grand Slam doubles finals she played against her. But but I, I first of all, would concentrate on her singles career because I think that it just gets overlooked because she, she reached three Grand Slam singles finals. And I think it is just symptomatic of that time that you were either Everton Navratilova or you were pretty much everybody else. There was really only Mandlikova before... Graf came along. There was really only Mandlikova who was able to to break that duopoly at the top of, of the game. And if you look at Turnbull's record against the two, she won one and lost 18 against Evert. She won three and lost 28 against Navratilova. But she was beating everybody else. She was causing players nightmares. And one of our uh, one of our listeners, as as we've we've recently discovered and absolutely thrilled about, is Pam Shriver, who was part of that era. Um, and I asked, I, I looked up their record. I wanted to see what their head to head looked like, um, Shriver and Turnbull, and and it was eleven ten in the favour of Wendy Turnbull. And this is what Pam had to say about uh, Wendy when I asked her about her. She said, "Wendy the Rabbit Turnbull, that was her nickname, the Rabbit, because of her speed around the court." was one of the fastest players uh, around the course of the 70s and early 80s. Her forehand was her main weapon, but since it was flat, it could go off. She was not tall, maybe five foot four, but she played an all-court game. Very smart tactically. One of my most painful losses was in the Sydney final, which was then played on grass. I had seven match points on Wendy and lost 7-6 in the final set. Thank God I won Sydney a few years later. (laughs) Wendy was a great doubles and mixed doubles player. She also served on many a WTA board of directors. uh, And uh, yeah, she she was very, very complimentary of her. Um, I think the reason she's in my consciousness is not just because of those results i think it's two things one i in post career and in my early commentary career i got to commentate on several u.s open finals with her and i and she was yet another example of a player who would always turn to billy jean king for her pearls of wisdom just little things that she would say billy jean king always used to say to us stay in the now is is what wendy would say in virtually every commentary approaching match point in a Grand Slam final stay in the now and she would turn to Billie Jean King as as a as a source for for knowledge and wisdom and the other thing is going back to my childhood really was her record in mixed doubles finals at Wimbledon with her partner John Lloyd and two years in a row they won the title together and back in those days there were just three television channels in the uk the two bbc channels and itv there was no channel four yet there was no sky none of these channels and i i'd love to know what the viewing figures were for those mixed doubles finals because it felt to me like everybody in the country was watching them everybody loved john lloyd because he was british and britain had so few champions and wendy turnbull was his partner from australia but it was just it was just a great story. It felt like everybody was watching it. They were on the on the 
I'm sure they're on at least the back pages of the newspapers and they've won two years in a row. First year against Billie Jean King in the final alongside this absolute giant of a man, another handlebar moustache called Steve Denton, who had the scariest looking serve I'd ever seen in my life. And I I reckon if you measured it now, it would be 140 miles an hour plus. Um, And he was serving that against Wendy Turnbull and she was getting it back. It was great to see. Um, but you know, you don't hear too much about her and, uh, and I wanted to mention her. You know, I, I'm very ashamed to say that I always thought she was British because I know her name mostly from association with John Lloyd. Um, Uh, I I, I think if I had, I examined that assumption, I, I would have come to the conclusion she must've been Australian because you do hear her name a lot or not a lot, not, not as much as you ought to, but her name is smattered around during the Australian Open time. But yeah, I associate her with with John Lloyd at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's so interesting what can get you on this list. I mean, obviously, this is not a definitive list by any means. But, you know, I think had she won one of those Grand Slams that you mentioned, David, we might not be talking about her as forgotten. I mean, there are obviously one-time Grand Slam champions who sort of um, get lost in the crowd a little bit like Arantes, like an Edmondson, but she might have stood out if she won one. But what she did have is this incredible consistency. But unfortunately, consistency is not sexy, is it? No one no one really remembers that. But I was reading she, she finished in the top 10 eight years in a row and in the top 20 10 years in a row. You know, as a as a tennis achievement, that deserves to be remembered and talked about. Mm. But it, it, it's just not going to go go beyond people who really sort of dig into the records, unfortunately. If if we were like the Tuesday Club and uh, titled our podcasts using <laughs> quotes from that podcast, this one would be called Consistency is Not Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Tuesday Club, the Arsenal podcast that we all listen to. Yes. It's the only thing we care about Arsenal for. <laughs> Um, by the way, just just to remind of the the Grand Slam finals she was in, the singles ones, U.S. Open 1977, French Open 1979, both lost to Chris Everts, and then Hannah Mandlikova on grass in the last one in the Australian Open in 1980. And uh, I was actually reading a piece with Wendy Turnbull recently talking about that final that they had subsequently got together and reminisced about having faced in that Australian Open final. Mandlikova, I think, won the first set six love. And Wendy Turnbull was incredibly nervous, she said. And Mandlikova said, well, so was I. <laughs> and Wendy's like, I wish I'd known. <laughs> I'm like, Might have helped me. Um, apparently, Elton John, who was in the crowd that day, I don't know how he managed this, but he managed to send her a note onto the court, which arrived after the first set that she'd lost six love and told her, I'm right behind you, keep going. And then she managed to make a fight to that second set and lost it 7-5. Imagine receiving <laughs> a uh, a coaching violation warning <laughs> of because John. of a, a note from Elton John, <laughs> oh, which, which frankly, she, by the letter of the law, she probably ought to have. <laughs> Elton John potentially intervening in the course of tennis history. I love that. Um, Folks, we've done an hour and uh, we've done four players. I think we'd better come back. And we have pledged to do uh, twice weekly podcasts. So why don't we come back? We've done five players. 
Have we've we? done five, yes. We've done five, four to, four to go from this round. Mm. But I mean, it was hard enough to narrow down narrow down to this shortlist, wasn't it? So who knows? St- someone start making up the T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> With a catchy um, title. Consistency yeah, sh- should isn't we, sexy. Should we do more of this on Thursday? More of the past? Yeah. Yes, David's let's. in. David's in. I wasn't expecting, David, for you to go back to the 70s. I thought you were just going to. But, of course, nothing from the 90s is lost in time for you. It's very no. much present in time. I can just just reveal that off the top of my head with no <laughs> trouble. So, yeah, we'll be, back, uh, we'll be back with more of this on Thursday. Should we do a little tease of who's on the list or should we keep it a secret? I think I want to keep it a secret. Okay. Okay. But just remember, folks, consistency is not sexy. <laughs> Uh, Matt, David, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us in the Kickstarter. We'll be back with this on Thursday because we're very consistent with our podcast. We're not sexy, but we are very consistent. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 